Well, we begin our study with a question. The question is this. Who has the right to tell you what to do, how to live your life, where to go, how to worship, what to believe, who to marry, how to spend your money, all these nagging questions at us all the time. What do we do? How do we do it? We're used to believing that we are our own boss and having a free will to do anything that we want. But as Christians, we recognize that we are under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even the title Lord means master or commander, sovereign. And if Jesus Christ is Lord, then that means that we are not. And if Jesus Christ is Lord, then he has full authority over all of his people. Of course, not everyone likes the idea of Jesus Christ having full authority. Even many in his day opposed his authority and openly challenged him. In John chapter 12, the Pharisees and religious leaders of Israel, they tried to steer people away from Jesus. But in, in John 12, 47 through 49, Jesus himself declared, If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come the wor- into the world to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke will judge him at the last day. Then he says this, For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. Therefore, these things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. In other words, Jesus is under the full authority of God the Father, and yet the Father has given the authority of what to say, what to speak. He's given all authority to the Son. In fact, that's what he says in Matthew 28, 18. Jesus himself declares post-resurrection, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So when Jesus speaks, heaven and earth respond. Yet those are, there are those on earth who do not accept this. And in Matthew 21, we encounter a showdown of sorts between the Jewish leaders of Israel and the Lord Jesus Christ over the issue of authority. And so if you're not already there yet, go to Matthew chapter 21 in your copy of Scripture, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 21. Now, we're in the events of Passion Week in this Gospel at this point, and Passion Week marks a significant shift in the ministry of Jesus And while he has been visiting the city on pilgrimage for years, this specific ministry or this specific visit is different. For starters, he rides into the city on the back of a donkey in fulfillment of messianic prophecy. And the crowds, they're they're chanting as he's riding in. They're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The next day, he, he cleanses the temple and he drives out all the merchants and money changers Um, interrupting and disrupting the religious commercial industry. And then he begins teaching and healing in the temple. And then we see him curse the fig tree, which seems at first to be kind of a strange thing to do, but it is, as we saw last week, it's a sign of judgment on apostate Israel. And now it's Tuesday, or depending on the scholarship that you're submitted to, it's possibly Wednesday, somewhere in the middle of the week, and he's back in the temple that he's just purged, And he's teaching the crowds. 
But the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of Israel, they see this, they see him teaching in the temple, and they're not one bit happy about it. And so now they have vowed to stop it. And so we pick this up in Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 23. Speaking of Jesus, when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will ask, also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source, from heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. He also said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go to work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. The man came to the second son and said the same thing, and he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, The first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him, and you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe him. In verse 23, we see that Jesus has returned to the temple mount, to the outer court, what is called the court of the Gentiles, and he's continued to teach. And the question is, well, what is he teaching in this outer court? Mark actually tells us that he was teaching and preaching the gospel. He was telling people to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and to believe in the Son of God for salvation. And so the gospel that he's preaching includes both judgment against sinners and hope for the repentant. But the chief priests and the elders of the people had been spying on him and trying to catch him in either a mistake or a lie so that they could discredit him in the eyes of the people. That was what they ultimately wanted. They couldn't couldn't beat him on his own turf, on his own terms. So their plan is if we can make him look foolish or like a, a heretic or a false teacher in the eyes of all the people, the crowds will reject him and will be rid of him. Now this group of high priests and chief priests and elders, this likely included Annas, who was the high priest that year, as well as his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who plays a prominent role in the days to come. But the text says that they came to him while he was teaching. In other words, they interrupted him in front of the crowds. He's teaching near one of the porticos in the inside of this temple court, and they just beeline it right for him, and in front of the entire group of people he's teaching, they confront him and they ask him this question, by what authority are you doing these things, and and who gave you this authority? Essentially, what they're doing is they're asking for his credentials. They're walking up and basically saying, papers, please. That's what they're doing. They want to stop him. It's a jarring act to try to shake him up and get him off his square and to, to demand credentials from this rabbi. Because generally, it was the Sanhedrin that qualified and ordained the rabbis. 
And so here's how it would go. A, a young student would train under a respected rabbi for a number of years, and then when they were ready, he would be examined by the Jewish Sanhedrin, and they would grant him whatever qualification he had earned, you know, the title of rabbi. But here's the thing. Jesus never trained under any rabbi and was never examined or ordained by any of their councils. And yet, here he is, teaching in the temple, ransacking it, disrupting their business, cursing their traditions, and condemning them in the process. And so in their minds, they're saying, who in the world do you think you are? Where did you come from? Where did you get your teaching? Where did you get your authority? What makes you think you can come here and do these things? Now, again, they can't just yell and scream at him. They have to prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that he is disqualified to speak and therefore to be there. And so they devise a trap. They devise a trap. They plan to ask him this question. By what authority are you doing these things? And by these things, it's likely referring to not only his teaching, but also his healing ministry, as well as the cleansing of the temple and the condemnation of all of them. All the things he's doing, they're saying, well, by what authority? Who gave you this authority? But here's the trap, and here's how this is going to go. If he says that he received the authority by some human, by a person, if it's under human authority, then they can disqualify him right then and there. Well, why? Because they know of no rabbi who granted him any authority, and they certainly didn't give him any authority either. So if he says by human authority, then they can dismantle it right then and there. But if he says he's ministering under divine authority, they're going to accuse him of blasphemy. In fact, the previous year, some of them had actually already done this Because Jesus was performing miracles by the power and the authority of heaven, but they were attributing that power and authority to Satan. And they accused him in front of all the people of doing his ministry by the power of Satan. But then Jesus rebukes them in John chapter 8 and accuses them of being liars just like their father, the devil. And they didn't particularly like that, by the way, being called demonic and satanic. But here they are again attacking his authority, And what's Jesus going to say to this? How is he going to get out of this trap? Verse 24, Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Uh Uh-oh, he's not playing by the rules. He's changing the game. But in fairness, it was not uncommon in the rabbinic tradition to answer a question with another question. This was kind of how rabbis would do it. And it would perpetuate the discussion even further. And so this was acceptable for him to do this, but it wasn't what they were expecting. And so Jesus is simply playing by their rules. And he asked the question, verse 25, the baptism of John. The baptism of John. And baptism, he really is talking about not just the baptism, but the whole ministry. The baptism and ministry of John was from what source? Was it from heaven or was it from men? And just like that, their own trap is now sprung on themselves. Well, how? How, did it, how is it now sprung on themselves? Because Jesus turns their question pertaining to authority back on them, and he's now going to force them to answer the question regarding authority, except this time it's regarding John the Baptist. Not necessarily him, but John now. Well, why John the Baptist? Well, John the Baptist was the first prophet 
to be sent by the Lord to Israel in over 400 years. He spoke like a prophet. He acted like a prophet. He even dressed like a prophet. Now, the Sanhedrin had investigated John, and they were not ultimately convinced that he was a prophet from God. But here's the thing. All of Israel did believe that John the Baptist was a genuine prophet. And so the chief priests and the elders, they're stuck. Verse 25, they began reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say that John's getting his authority to minister from heaven, then he will say to us, why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, remember, all of Israel thinks he's a prophet, and they say we fear the people, for they regarded him as a prophet. So now they're stuck. They don't know what to do. And notice what this is all about, ultimately. This is not about the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and the scribes and the elders and the uh, chief priests. This is not about them discerning the truth. Notice that. This has nothing to do with truth. This has everything to do with them saving face and protecting their interests. If they say that John's ministry was from men and not from God, they're going to have a riot on their hands. And they know this, and they're going to risk losing influence and power over the people, and they don't want that. They don't want anybody to to think poorly of them so as to rebuke them and correct them and to remove their power. But if they declare that John's ministry is from heaven, then they have to believe what John said and yield to the truth of his teaching, and they don't want to do that either. And what did John teach that was so unbearable for them? Turn over in your copy of Scripture to John chapter 1. Just a few pages over, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospel of John. Now the testimony of Scripture is that God sent John the Baptist as a forerunner before the arrival of Messiah. He is there as a herald to announce the coming king. That's the whole ministry of John the Baptist. And this is the prophecy of Malachi 4.5, by the way. We have that in our minds. And Jesus declares that John had come in the spirit and power of Elijah. So he's not specifically Elijah reincarnate, but he is coming in the ministry and in the power and the spirit of, of Elijah. He is the forerunner. But not everybody believed this, particularly as we've seen the Sanhedrin. And so John chapter 1, starting in verse 19, John, the writer of the gospel, says of John the Baptist, don't get the Johns confused here, by the way, but verse 19, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? Referring to the prophet Moses was talking about. And he answered, no. And they said to him, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and they said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. 
It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man whom has a higher rank than I because he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifest to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. So here we see John confess before all of them that while he is not the Messiah, nor Elijah incarnate, incarnate, nor the prophet about which Moses had spoken, he is merely a voice in the wilderness calling Israel to prepare for the Christ. And then when Jesus arrives, John declares before all, behold, and he's, when he says behold, he's pointing to him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he identifies Jesus as the sacrificial Lamb of God, the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He calls him the Son of God, the Son of the Most High God. But the Pharisees and the chief priests and the elders, they're confronted with a choice here. They could either believe the testimony of John and receive Jesus as the Christ, or they could reject his words and harden their hearts. And so when Jesus confronted them with the question, from what source is the ministry of of John the Baptist, his baptism, is it from heaven or from men? They could no longer sidestep it. They have to give an answer. What do you do with Jesus? That's what they're struggling with. How do we respond? How do they answer the question? Go back to Matthew 21. You see here, there's a tension building because they're on the horns of this. Here is their opportunity, my friends. And notice how gracious the Lord is. After three years of being attacked, Jesus keeps on giving them an opportunity. They have a chance right now. Their opportunity here to accept the Messiah by accepting the testimony of John the Baptist. And so they could answer this question. Where did John get his ministry, his baptism, his message? Is it from the God of heaven or is it from men? Verse 27. In answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. The saddest words of this whole passage. We don't know. That's a lie, by the way. They do know. They just won't admit it. He also said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is disappointing, but not surprising. In their hardness of heart, they simply would not confess Jesus as the Christ. No matter what he said, no matter what miracles he performed, or how many prophets came and told them, it did not matter. Instead, they fall into the trap that they set for Jesus, and now they're rendered speechless. But here's the thing. Jesus isn't done with them yet. He answers their silence by telling a parable. 
Now, keep the setting in mind here. Keep what's going on, the drama here. Keep it in your mind. Jesus is teaching in the temple. He's in the courts here. The members of the Sanhedrin, they're beelining it for him. He's, he's got a crowd around them. They interrupt. They weave through the crowd. They stop him dead in his tracks. They attack him for his authority. He answers them. They're having this debate in front of the crowds in the temple courts. And now... They, they still haven't walked away. They're still standing there. And now he's going to pose a question for them to answer in front of everybody. Look at verse 28. He says, but what do you think? Now he's continuing with the discussion. What do you guys think about this? A man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. And the man came to the second and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? Now, this is a very simple parable, perhaps one of Jesus' shortest parables. Now, some have tried to allegorize this parable and, and look for symbols inside of it. Well, who is the man? What does the man represent? And who were the two sons? And what's the vineyard and all that stuff? And and there, we certainly could draw some parallels because there are lots of repeated symbols here. The man is likely God the Father. The vineyard is likely Israel. The two sons are likely two kinds of people. But here's the thing, and many commentators have noted this as well. The point of the parable is not to teach about the ministry of Israel or something else. He's not using the parable to illustrate some kind of interwoven truth or expound upon the symbols the point of the parable is to force the religious leaders to answer Jesus' question to them, and this is the only way he's going to get them to do it. And they don't want to answer, keep in mind. But in doing this, and thus exposing them for who they really are, he wants to, he's going to show them to be frauds by this parable. So if you see that that is the goal of it, then it starts to make a lot more sense, even though I do believe that there are some symbols inside of the parable. But let's look at this together. This is the first of three parables given in this section. The second is the parable of the vineyard in verses 33 through 46, which we'll look at next time. The third parable comes in uh, chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. But this is the parable of the two sons. And again, it's simple enough. Jesus says a man has two sons, and he tells both of these sons that he wants them to go and work in the vineyard. He goes to the first son. And he says, son, go work today in the vineyard. Now, naturally, you would expect the son to obey, right? Verse 29, he answered and said, I, I will not. So the son rejects it. He says, I won't go. I will not. But afterward, he regretted it. And then he goes and works in the vineyard. Verse 30, the man came to the second, meaning the second son. And he said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Now, I want you to be cautious to note this here. Both sons were disobedient to their father. They, they both did the wrong thing. They both, either one said he won't go, which is disobedience. The other one said he will, but didn't do it. So they're both in disobedience. But in the final analysis here, verse 31, Jesus asked the question, which of these two sons did the will of his father? Now, the Sanhedrin responds, the first now, that's the correct answer. That's the correct answer. But before we keep on going with here, I want to point out a minor, what's called a textual variant here. 
I just want to push on the pause button here. Some editions of the Bible, and maybe some of the Bibles that you're having in your hands right now, some versions of the Bible reverse the order of the parable. In other words, uh, some of the versions say it's the first son that agrees but doesn't go, and the second son that refuses and then relents. And in those versions, if that's the version that you have in front of you, then the Sanhedrin identifies the second son or the latter son as the one who does the will of the Father. Now, the reasons for the alternate versions of the scriptures here in this one place has to do with the disagreement over early manuscripts because there were several versions of this parable that we were not sure which one is authentic. But here's the thing to, to note, and this is what's really important. Regardless of which version of the parable you have in your scriptures here, um, they're both, the, the truth of it is the exact same. The son that initially refuses but ultimately goes to work, that's the one who ultimately does the will of the Father. Okay, That's what's important about this. And so the Jewish leaders, they're answering correctly. They identify. Yes, there's a son that doesn't initially go, but he relents and then goes. He's the one who ultimately does what his father asks. Okay, So does Jesus praise them for getting the answer right? Hey, good job, guys. You got one right today. You answered the parable correctly. Is that what he does here? On the contrary, he said to them, Truly I say to you that tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. Why does he say this to them? Remember his earlier question now. Where did John get his baptism? Because again, that's the question he really wants them to answer. And he wants them to answer in front of the crowd, by the way. Now, if they had answered this correctly, the way that they answered the parable, now, back up a little bit here. He wants them to answer the John the Baptist question. If they had answered that one and answered this one correctly, then they would have confessed that John's ministry was from heaven and therefore they would have believed. This would have meant repentance if they had answered the original question correctly. See, in this way, the two sons represents two types of people. Forgiven sinners and false saints. Forgiven sinners and false saints. First, the sinners. There was no one who was more detestable in Israel than tax collectors and prostitutes. The tax collectors, they were traitors to Israel because they abused their own people in the process of collecting taxes for Rome. They were traitors. They, were, they had turned their tail on their own people, and so therefore they were the worst sinners in Israel. As far as prostitutes, well, certainly they symbolized all of impurity and immorality at, at its, poss its worst possible place. These were the most perverse sins, frankly. They were a moral scourge on Israel. However, this group is most like the first son. See, when the father told these people to obey his commands, they said no, and they spurned him. Do right by God's people. No, we're going to go get rich off of our, the backs of our people. Honor me in marriage and in purity. No, we're going to go do whatever we want. Okay, You see that, that they, they disobeyed up front. But when John came in the way of righteousness and preached repentance to them, many tax collectors and prostitutes who had been disobedient to God 
and were known for being disobedient to God, they regretted their behavior, and they repented of their sins, and they believed. Again, still disobedient to God initially, but in repentance, they ultimately do the will of the Father. You see that? Again, they're, they're, they're sinful, but they have been forgiven. What about the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and chief priests and elders? Verse 32, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and with a baptism from heaven, mind you, and you did not believe him. In fact, they came to John in Matthew chapter 3, in their pomp and arrogance, and John saw them for what they were, hypocrites. And he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. See, John tried to warn them three years ago. He warned them, you guys are vipers. You guys are two-faced jackals. You guys are whitewashed tombs. Woe to you. Shame on you. You need to repent in dust and ashes and bring forth the fruit of repentance and follow after the Lord. And even when well-known sinners in town like the tax collectors and the prostitutes, even when they believed the Sanhedrin saw them repenting and yet did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe. Yes, they answered the parable correctly. That the first son obeyed the will of the father. But here's the thing. They were nothing like the first son. Not at all. Well, who were they like? They're like the second son. Well, what did he say? Well, the second son feigned obedience. When the father asked him, I want you to go and work the vineyard, he said, oh, I will, sir. I will obey, absolutely. Yes, I'm your man when it comes to obedience. The word sir here is kurios in the Greek. It's literally Lord. Oh, yes, Lord, I will go into the vineyard. I will work hard for you. Oh, Lord, we will obey We will honor you. We'll do great things in your name. But did they obey? No. They did not. Despite hearing from John, despite beholding the signs, despite listening to Jesus' teaching, despite seeing miracles, despite what was said in the scriptures, I mean, evidence after evidence after evidence, despite all of that, in the end, they would deny what was plainly in front of them. No remorse, no repentance, no faith. And yet, the tax collectors and prostitutes, out of all people, they repented and they believed. And Jesus says, they're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. They're going to heaven. Well, how does this apply to us? Because remember, not every single text is about us. Certainly, most of them are not literally about us, but all of the Word of God applies to us as believers, all of it. Every single verse, every jot and tittle is profitable for teaching and correcting and training in righteousness, right? So how are we to draw from this? Here's the thing. All of us are disobedient sons and daughters. All of us have sinned. All of us. And yet, we have been given the opportunity to repent of our sinfulness and our our waywardness. 
And in doing so, we can believe on Christ, the Son of God. And when we do this, we are like the first son. Because here's the thing, prior to salvation, all of us lived lives of ruin. Now, some of us might have looked better than others. Maybe some of you didn't do jail time. Maybe some of you didn't destroy your life before Christ. But look inside of your own heart, inside your own soul. Look at the the thoughts and intents of your heart, pride and arrogance and selfishness. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so, yes, we all said to the Lord, I will not obey. But then in salvation, we regretted our sins, didn't we? And we said, this is wrong. I, I need to obey the gospel. I need to obey the Lord. I need to have a heart change. And by grace, it's given to us. And so when we do this, we're like the first son. We're a forgiven sinner who has obeyed the will of God and been saved. And then there are those who say they love the Lord. And they promise to obey. And they look the part. And they go to church. And they do the stuff. And yet they have no desire to obey Him. Their life as they know it, their sinfulness, their will, their desires, all of that is more important to them than the Lord. And Jesus addresses this in Matthew 7, 21. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But listen to this. He who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. It's not just about saying you'll do it. It's about what is your heart who, does, who is your master? Is your master yourself? Am I, am I, is Nate my master? Are you your own God? Or do you submit to the will of the Father? Do you humbly acknowledge, Lord, I, I, yes, I am sinful, I am selfish, I am self-willed, I am a stubborn child, Lord, but you are God, and, and I, I want to do what is your will, so Lord, help me to do it, I want to walk in righteousness. I want to deny the flesh. I want to deny myself. I want to lose everything to follow you. That's what I want. So I want to obey. I want to go and work in the vineyard, Lord. That's the heart of someone who who has the obedience of faith. It's about realigning your life in such a way that you can walk in righteousness. Yet this must be done by faith. This is not a matter of me telling you, believers, to go and just muscle up the strength to go and do the right thing for God. That's not it. No, we must confess by the power of the Spirit and by faith. We must believe by the power of the Spirit and by faith. We must walk and live and move and obey by faith and by the power of the Spirit. What does that mean? It means, Lord, when you tell me that there is therefore now no condemnation for me, I believe you. And when you tell me, Lord, by the promises that you've given, that I have the indwelling Spirit within me, enabling me to walk in righteousness, I believe you. And so, Lord, I'm just going to walk by faith that you have delivered me from the domain of darkness and from hell, and I'm going to live righteously. 
But I'm also going to trust you and believe the promises that say that when I do fall off the wagon and when I do sin, I can confess and be forgiven and be restored. I'm going to believe that too. And so I'm just going to keep on walking one step at a time, trusting that what you tell me, the promises of God, that what you tell me is true, and I'm going to live as though that's true. That's faith, believers. This is not us being amazing Christians doing great things for God. It's about humbly trusting Him and walking by faith. Lord, be merciful to me. Forgive me. Help me. Those are earnest prayers, beloved. God hears those. He knows you're weak. <laughs> Heavens, he, he knows how weak we are. And what, what, is, what does the Lord say? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble at heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. For my burden is easy. My yoke is light. What does Isaiah 42 say? A, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not extinguish. If you're struggling in your faith, but you want to obey, if you're struggling, he sees you. He's not going to walk by and snap you like a twig. He's not going to walk by and huff you out and get rid of you, extinguish you. Our Lord is gracious. He is gentle. He's a good God. But you have to trust Him. You have to obey. You have to believe. Lord, You are my God. And I will trust You. And I will walk by faith. And I will, I will follow You. No matter what it costs me, Lord, I will follow. And if you're like that, then you're like the first son. And you are doing the will of the Father. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, what a marvelous word of truth this is. We, we read these parables, we read these interactions, Lord, and it's, it's so easy for us, oh Lord, to look at the Pharisees and go, oh, shame on you. And yet, Lord, I, I see so much of myself in the Pharisees. I see so much of myself in their display of their hardness of heart and yet my heart breaks for them and I'm sure that yours did as well and you just want to shake these men and say oh if you would just see taste and see that the Lord is good and turn from your sins and so Lord we, we don't want to be like the Pharisees and the chief priests and the elders of the the people we want to be humble we want to be obedient children. We want to love you, Lord, and we want to deny ourselves. We want to walk in righteousness. Why? Because you're worth it. Your glory is so wonderful. Your kindness to us, O oh Lord. I could sing and write of your kindness forever, Lord, but your kindness is so sweet to us. And when we see your kindness, we feel bad because we're like, why would we ever rebel against you? But we know that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So Lord, break our hearts. Cause us to, to crumble just a little bit so that we'll see our need for you. 
that we'll see that a life of sin and debauchery and selfishness is just not worth it. It leads only to death. But Lord, that we might see obedience and disciplines that focus on you, that we would see that as so precious, that we would respond to you in repentance and faith and cling to the hem of your garment and say, Lord, I want to follow you. Take me with you. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and paid for my sins and rose again the third day to give me life. I believe that. So help me to live for you. Lord, be merciful to your people. Give us encouragement. Lift us up, Lord. Cause us to walk in your ways. We love you, O Lord. You are truly our great God and Savior. We pray all this in your name. Amen.